The murder of Martin Luther King Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shots that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. The number one question is can, number one question is can the best stick up? The number one question is can, number one question is can the best stick up? The number one question is can, number one question is can the best stick up? Welcome back to The Crux. So I feel like the last episode was a bit of a whirlwind where, you know, I was giving y'all stuff from decades before the assassination and then stuff decades after the assassination. We're on multiple continents and we're just shooting through the decades. And I spent very little time, you know, in Memphis on the day itself. Very little time with the moment itself, the shot. Because there is this huge billowing cloud of evidence that does span decades and it, and it needs to be, you know, considered. But for this episode, I want to, I want to start with a photo, this single image that hopefully we can use to cut through that, that confusing haze. Because in some ways, this photo kind of is the best piece of evidence we have it's probably the best window we have into the assassination itself. And so that's where I want to start. I want to return to Memphis and get as close as we can to the assassination itself, to the moment. To start with this photo and then work our way out from there. So I'm referring to the famous photo, that iconic photo of the slain king just moments after the shot had been fired. If you haven't seen the photo, it's what I use for the cover of this podcast. So maybe you could just pause here and, and take another look if you need to. But in the photo, we can see King's shape laid out. This is on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine. And his friends and colleagues are, are pointing to where they think the shot had come from. They're trying to help out the authorities in the parking lot who, who are asking them to, you know, to point out the killer. And we can see Andrew Young. Most clearly, he's the one that I most immediately recognize. He's sort of in the middle and he's standing and, and pointing. But where are Young and the rest of King's folks pointing? I mean, had they actually seen the shot? Or maybe they just heard the blast and they're pointing toward that general area across the street. So I've tried to trace the direction of their arms, that angled direction, and map it onto the topography of that little part of Memphis. So you can see they're pointing slightly upward. And, you know, assuming they had seen where the shot had come from, that that angled direction of their arms could be really significant. In fact, everything could hinge on that. They could be pointing to the killer. I mean, if they're pointing to the second floor bathroom window of Bessie Brewer's Flophouse, they're corroborating the FBI's case, the state's case, that it was James Earl Ray. But if they're pointing just below toward these dense bushes up a little hill where others say they saw this hooded figure. Everything changes, and, and now we have to reckon with conspiracy. But they'd have to have seen the shot. And let me say here that no one in this photo saw the shot. I mean, no one on the scene saw the shot. We can see that they've all sort of collectively concurred and they're all sort of pointing, you know, on, on a line. 
But they hadn't seen anything. They hadn't even seen a wisp of, of gun smoke. So we might think that this picture ends up being something of a bust, that it really doesn't tell us much. But look at it again. There's someone else in the photo. Someone seemingly less concerned with pointing out the killer. And the mystery of that figure suggests something really fucking dark and sinister. No one else in the photo knew who this guy was. He was, and and kind of still is, a mystery. The man you're looking at, kneeling next to King, touching King, is a government spy. Codename Agent 500. He's working for the Memphis Police Intelligence Division, this sort of quasi-FBI operation in Memphis that coordinated with, with Hoover's national FBI. So what's so crazy about the photo is that, you know, Andrew and King's people are, are pointing to where they, they think the shooter was. But none of them know at that moment that essentially one of King's greatest enemies is touching him. This FBI asset. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover's long tentacles reach into this scene. In a way, Hoover is here in the photo. This Agent 500 had worked his way into King's inner circle in Memphis. King and his men believed him to be this local black activist, part of this group called the Invaders, which was like a local Memphis, like Black Panther type organization. But he was anything but. He was yet another agent of the government. The place was swarming with them. The Lorraine was swarming with government men, spies. And there he is just moments after the shot, as many have suggested, checking King's vitals. Take another look at the photo and judge that for yourself. While King's people are concerned with the killer, this Agent 500 appears, say some, concerned with whether or not the killer had been successful. And for almost 50 years since that day, this Agent 500 has remained one of the most mysterious figures involved. So much was discovered, you know, related to this assassination in in subsequent decades. But Agent 500 remains elusive. I mean, we know that he was in this Memphis Police Intelligence Division and he was reporting to the FBI. We know his name, Merrill McCullough. But we don't know a whole lot else. Because, for one thing, this was a secretive motherfucker. So, he was interviewed in the days after the assassination. Because, you know, there he is in the photo. He was on the scene. And so he's interviewed by the FBI. Of whom he was an asset. So, you know, the FBI was receiving intel that this guy was, that this agent was was gathering for them. But then when they sit down for an interview and they ask him who he is, it appears, according to the record, that he's that that he stays undercover, that he he keeps the same cover that he used to get into the invaders and then get into King's Circle, which was necessary 
in those cases, but now you're talking to, to friendlies, you're talking to the FBI. Why would you still stay undercover and say that you're just a student and you're just, you know, into civil rights and all this and that? Not that you're this undercover agent. I mean, I really struggle to make sense of this. I mean, you know, I mean, think about it. The FBI are the super cops. They're the cops of, of the cops. If if a cop does something illegal, the FBI are, you know, more often than not, they're the cops to that cop. And so when this Memphis intelligence agent, you know, is asked who he is by the FBI, by these super cops in the middle of this huge investigation that was on its way to becoming this international manhunt. When they ask him who he is, he doesn't just say, hey, guys, I'm that dude, Agent 500. Nice to meet you. You're welcome for, you know, the intel I gave you. He stays undercover. What the fuck? What is he? Is he trying to keep something from them? Or does the FBI know who he is? Because they're the fucking FBI. And they're trying to keep this Agent 500 out of the record, out of the official record. Because that's where I found this. I found this sort of deep in the appendices of the, the committee, the assassination committee report. And, you know, this was, this document was furnished by the FBI. And so maybe they were just trying to keep his identity secret, I guess. I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm baffled by this, but, but in either case, it only contributes to this, the mystery around this guy who's, who's right there in the photo touching King. But Agent 500 is just the beginning. The Lorraine was crawling with state spies. You had these Memphis police intelligence agents, you know, sort of like this Agent 500 in this sort of quasi FBI operation in Memphis. Posted up across the street. And their info would also be passed on to the FBI. These guys across the street were keeping this 24 hour surveillance on King at the Lorraine. They were right, sort of right next door to the, to the boarding house where, where Ray was staying. And they, they were in this, this fire station and they were in the back room and they papered over this window so they couldn't be seen, but they'd cut out some holes for, for binoculars. And these guys have been tracking King since like he landed in Memphis. Like they intercepted him at the airport and had been tracking him. Like every minute. In addition to that, there was this famous civil rights photographer who just very recently got revealed as as another FBI asset. Now, he was working for the Memphis paper, what was called the Commercial Appeal. And he was reporting back to the FBI things he saw when he came around. And he was well trusted by King and others in the movement. I mean, this guy was a famous civil rights photographer. I mean, he was sort of considered to be part of the movement in his way. And he was at the Lorraine on the 4th. And then the FBI had their people on on the sort of the back end. If you remember from the first episode, there was Arthur Murtaugh and his whole black probe group of agents in Atlanta. And they had King's offices bugged. You know, his, his phones, his, he had an apartment in, in, in Atlanta. All that was, was bugged. 
They wiretapped a phone in his own house in Atlanta. Every hotel room he went to. They bugged. They followed him everywhere. They knew so much about King. And then they had this guy, James Harrison, who was deep inside the SCLC. He was the accountant. I mean, he was, he was really in, in the center of things in the SCLC, but he was another FBI asset. And he was passing information on to Hoover that then Hoover was passing on to president Johnson. So the accountant King's accountant in the SCLC was passing Intel more or less directly to President Lyndon Johnson. Which is insane. You know, but this was also before Hoover in in the early, like January of 1968, just a couple months, few months before, had started to go rogue or, or more rogue and was keeping President Johnson out of the loop. But it gets even shadier. It's crazy. Let's get back to Memphis. So this, oh, this gets, it gets even more sus. Okay. The director of the Memphis PD and that intelligence division, that sort of quasi FBI thing that was just all over King was this guy, Frank Holloman, who had been the agent in charge of J. Edgar Hoover's office in Washington, D.C. for seven years, seven straight years. He'd been like one of Hoover's right-hand men in Washington before becoming head of Memphis PD. He was, quote, very close, he says to Hoover. He was working in the innermost of inner circles of the FBI. He'd been personally selected for that position by Hoover. And in April of 1968, he's the one coordinating the relationship between his Memphis intelligence unit, this quasi FBI with Hoover's FBI. Let that sink in a little bit. That Frank Holloman is the guy that's supposed to keep King safe in Memphis. But then when you think shit can't get any more fucked up, like we'd reached the limits of the fucked up in this, like, <laughs> you know, Hoover can only fit so many of his spies into the Lorraine and the surrounding buildings. Right. But then we learn that the Pentagon was also there, the army and not just the army, like army intelligence, these real sneaky motherfuckers and this like seal team six type shit. These Green Berets, what's called an Alpha 184 team, they're also deployed to Memphis because of King. And a lot of this, this is much less known than the FBI's activity. I mean, most people, maybe not most people, but a lot of people know, know something about COINTELPRO and the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. But really, very few. I didn't know shit about this. But the military was there heavy because they're freaking the fuck out about King. What King has planned, which is essentially a socialist revolution. That's what he has cooking in the spring of 1968. The army is freaking the fuck out about it. 
Like they, they're, they're beside themselves. They don't know what to do. So there's this army intelligence in, in what's called the 111th military intelligence group. They have this like sedan that's tricked out with all this high tech equipment that's crammed in there. This like this super high tech spy shit. They're lurking around keeping tabs on King. But then there's also this Alpha 184 team, these Green Berets, who are deployed to do something. The guy who wrote this article, the guy who discovered this, this guy, Steve Tompkins, who wrote for the Memphis paper, he got access, this really rare, privileged access to classified documents. And he knew that that Alpha 184 team was there because of King, and they were there because of what King had planned, the poverty campaign, the the big disruption in Washington, which is, I'll I'll continue to say this, it's, it's a socialist revolution. That's what King was planning. So they were there for that, but otherwise, it, that's kept what their like actual precise mission was is kept off off of paper. So Tompkins in 93, when he researches this, it never, never sees what they're there for precisely. But what he also learns is that the military, the Pentagon had been spooked by the Kings, the King family for like three generations, going back to September of 1917, where the, what was then called the war department, what we call the you know, Department of Defense, they opened a file on King's grandfather, Reverend A.D. Williams, who was pastor at Ebenezer Baptist, the, the church that, that King would eventually pastor in Atlanta. So they open a file on this, you know, I mean, relatively small-time pastor. And one of the first things in the file is this top-secret telegram sent from the Army's Southern Department headquarters in Atlanta. And it says, in part, it behooves us to find out all we possibly can about this colored preacher. Oh, does it? Does it behoove you? Jesus Christ, it starts to get really frustrating when you look into this. It really, really does. The guy wasn't doing anything. The guy was not doing anything. Just like just like King wasn't a communist, like Hoover thought. Reverend Williams, King's grandfather, was doing things like in 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 the file they say he's a radical negro agitator for leading a campaign to create a black high school. So the Pentagon's like, "Oh fuck, we got to direct the resources of the of the Pentagon to make sure we don't get a black high school in Atlanta." And then King's father, he succeeds King's grandfather at Ebenezer. And he gets his own army spies that, that are watching him. And at that point, basically just mere association with Ebenezer Baptist meant that you were going to be in the intelligence dossiers at the Pentagon. The, the little, a little secretary, this Lillian Watkins, she was in army files. Felton Sims, the janitor, he's in the army files just for, just for being employed by the church. And then we get to Martin Luther King Jr., who becomes the most powerful black leader in America, in American history, by his early 30s. And so to these army spies, Martin Jr. was a fear, like come to life. 
he wasn't simply this politically active, you know, Atlanta black preacher like his father and grandfather. This guy was a problem. He was a threat. I mean, he could mobilize millions. And the army was shook. And they treated him like an enemy. Like a foreign enemy. Okay, so so peep this. The famous protests in Birmingham in 1963. Listen, I didn't know this. I don't know how many people know this. But this thing was being recorded, was being monitored by U-2 spy planes. They were taken off from this super secret, what was called a Site 98, outside the Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. And over the next seven years, there were like 26 of these like super secret spy flights by U-2s and SR-71s. These like high-tech, like super high-flying, these things that were built to spy on the Russians, to spy on the Soviets. And they're spying over little old Birmingham in 63 because King is there. Like, seriously, that is, that is extraordinarily fucked up. I mean, cause we also have to consider, like I've said, you know, before with, with King and Hoover, I mean, in 63 in Birmingham, where they're flying U2 spy planes, over King's operations, like he's, you know, Khrushchev or some shit. King at that point was cuddly compared to how he'd become in 67 and 68. I mean, King's father had been suspected of being a communist by army intel. And that was J. Edgar Hoover's fear about Martin Jr. But then King really does make this radical turn in the last year or two of his life, not toward communism, but very certainly toward socialism. And that's one thing we need to understand that in the spring of 1968, when King is killed, he is in the final planning stages of what can only be called a socialist revolution, a multiracial socialist revolution. He's going to get people from all across the spectrum, poor people, working class people to go to Washington and occupy Washington. And shut shit down. This is like 50 years before Occupy Wall Street and infinitely more ambitious. He is going to shut shit down, shut the government down if need be, in order to get, quote, a total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. That's a big ask. And he is going to demand it with as many people as he can get, and they ain't leaving until they get it. So that's what he's got planned, and and his work in Memphis is 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 a, a bit of a testing ground, where he's merging his you know his pursuit of racial justice with economic justice, and that's why in Memphis he's proposing things like general strikes, which are you know really radical leftist tactics. So King is at this point, and he wouldn't have said it, but he's a socialist. And I would argue he's the most powerful socialist this country has ever had. I mean, I think you can, you know, certainly make arguments for, for Debs, uh, you know, or, you know, Sanders maybe, but I mean, but King was far more radical than Sanders. And I would argue far more powerful than Debs. I mean, especially when you consider 
potentiality. I mean, King, you know, is 39 when he's killed. And at 39, a guy like Barack Obama, say, was like a little state senator or whatever that didn't nobody know anything about. He was a nobody. Abraham Lincoln at 39 was essentially a nobody. Did nobody know who Abraham Lincoln was when he was 39 years old? Okay. King at 39 was about to shut shit down in D.C. And, and essentially demand democratic socialism, at least. And, like any good socialist, he had also put the, the vast military apparatus in his crosshairs. And he's become the, the leading, I would argue too, voice against the Vietnam War. And so now we have the worst fears of Hoover and the Pentagon starting to materialize. And again, we have to consider King was young. He was young enough to be in communication with that black power, that burgeoning black power set, that younger movement during the 60s. So H. Rat Brown and Stokely Carmichael and guys like that in SNCC, but then also the Black Panthers. So King is starting to share the rhetoric and the worldview of the Panthers and Stokely Carmichael and folks like that. So much so that now he's describing the American inner city, like the black inner city, as domestic colonies, as these internal colonized zones in the U.S., what James Baldwin would call occupied territory in the U.S., which is really radical because then you, you know, you have a different sort of critique for these rebellions that had been happening, these urban rebellions that started happening in 65 with Watts, 66, 67, and they were getting bigger and bigger. By the time you get to Detroit in 1967, I mean, it's, it's literal war. It's literal guerrilla warfare. And by conceiving of it as, as an anti-colonial struggle and not just riots, as they were described, you know, in, in white media, but as conceiving of them, you know, or in conceiving of them as, as, as uprisings against a colonial oppressor, now that puts black America in league with this whole wave of anti-colonial struggles going on in the, in the post-war world, especially in the, in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. So, you know, from, from Latin America to, to Africa, to Asia, you know, Cuba to Algeria, to Vietnam, to South Africa, to, you know, all over. And I realized this might bore the shit out of a lot of y'all. I really don't know. But here's the takeaway. King was a wrecking ball. He was this one man wrecking crew in 1967 and 1968. And he scared the powerful in this country shitless. All the way up to the president. Hoover and the FBI and the Pentagon don't know what the fuck to do with this guy. Literally, 
have meetings at the Pentagon and they don't know what to do. But like I've said earlier, members of the movement of the civil rights movement, they knew the dangers of pushing that, that complex of, of white supremacy and capitalism and imperialism too far. They knew the dangers. And so Stokely Carmichael at the beginning of 1967, and we're going to spend some time with 1967. Carmichael goes to meet King secretly at King's church, Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. And now <laughs> the, the army spies were able to pick up this conversation because that's what the, the fuck they did back then with their, like all their army spy shit. They pick up this conversation. So we have it, which is, I guess, nice. So Carmichael says, quote, you making a lot of new enemies. The man don't care. You call ghettos concentration camps, but when you tell him his war machine is nothing but hired killers, you got trouble. And then King King responds, I told you in Los Angeles, I can do nothing else. Because he couldn't. He couldn't. Because King is developing this intersectional critique now, where it's white supremacy and capitalism and, and imperialism, which means he's now creating all these new enemies. As if he needed more enemies. And so that's why we have Stokely Carmichael who gave us the term black power. He's the guy who, you know, coined the term black power. Stokely Carmichael was a true blue radical, a revolutionary. And Stokely goes to King at his church and he says, brah, you might need to chill the fuck out, man. Like you're going real hard in the pain right now. And you might need to chill. We want black power. We want black power. We want black power. power. Stokely Carmichael, a 25-year-old revolutionary born in the West Indies, educated at the best high school in New York, a college graduate with a degree in philosophy. It was here in Mississippi this summer that Carmichael, with his cry for black power, first became a national figure, and to many, a frightening one. Every courthouse in Mississippi ought to be burned down tomorrow to get rid of the dirt and hair. Now from now on, when they ask you what you want, you know what to tell them. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Everybody, what do you want? Dude, when Stokely Carmichael tells you to chill the fuck out, you're, you're going, you're going real hard. But King was not even phased by Stokely's warning. The way I know that is I know the rest of what the shit happened in 1967. So April 4th, 1967. Exactly one year to the day before his assassination, King publicly comes out against the Vietnam War for the first time. This is the what's called the Riverside speech or, or the Beyond Vietnam speech. And Beyond Vietnam is, you know, is appropriate because 
again, he's developing this sort of intersectional critique. So it's not just this like peacenik, like, oh, war is bad, you know, which would be fine because war is shit. But it is this critique of capitalism, of imperialism, and of course, of white supremacy. And so to show you what I'm talking about, I'm going to leave you this week with an excerpt from that speech. Again, given exactly a year before he was assassinated. And what it'll hopefully point to is, is the trajectory that his thought and his radicalism was going to take in that last year of his life. I mean, King in the last year of his life, from April 4th, 1967 onward, that dude was out here. But what that also means is that he was making new enemies. I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution... And yes, you did just hear him correctly. He said, if we want to get on the right side of the world revolution... I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. Number one question is can the best stick up? Number one question is can the best stick up?